Good morning. Thank you, Julia. That was a perfect song. And uh, maybe today's message will help us understand how we can sing You're All We Want and what that really is asking. This morning, I want to talk to us about the Holy Spirit. And so many years ago, when through the Jesus movement, I came and, and really, I, I, I just, I gave up on my life, found Christ, said, you be the Lord of my life. And not terribly long after that, I was given a little booklet, a pamphlet, really. Have you made the discovery, the wonderful discovery of the spirit-filled life? This is that little pamphlet, so all of us could handle that. Have you ever read this? Have you made the wonderful discovery of the spirit-filled life? Have any of you seen this, used it? Yeah, I see a hand or two. It's a very helpful little booklet. It helped me a great deal. I'm sure some would, would think maybe it's not the whole story. But here's what became incorporated in my life. I became an in, a person who anticipated the, the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And that didn't mean that I couldn't be nasty, difficult, ornery, angry, upset. But when I caught hold of myself in the sense of, whoa, what's, I would just do what the little booklet tells me to do. And that is practice spiritual breathing. And spiritual breathing is a good word because the very word spirit, or when we say Holy Spirit, well, the word pneuma is the word that is translated from Greek into English as spirit. And that's a good translation. But you'll find that word, that Greek word used all over the place for, for breath, for a gust of wind. It's always, it's not air, but it's air in motion. And it is the motion of God, if you will. It's the holy motion of the Lord. And it is his spirit. It's his holy breath. So when we breathe, if we practice spiritual breathing, as I learned from this little book, if you caught me and you said, what are you doing? It would look very normal, but internally, I was spiritually breathing. And I, as I said, if I was ornery, I would, I would say, Lord, that's not the person I want to be. Forgive me, or I confess that. You fill me with your spirit. I would accept God's forgiveness. I would do that as a transaction. We're all forgiven in the cross. We don't have to do that. But sometimes to snap out of an emotional entrapment due to our own behaviors, a, a kind of a, a track record of the way we handle life. Mine was anger. I've been very, 
very candid about that over the years. As a kid, that's how I learned to handle life. And only through the work of the Holy Spirit, only through the, the work of Jesus Christ in my life did I overcome that. But I still have that basic selfishness. All sin, in my opinion, and I think my opinion's pretty sharp on this, is selfishness. It takes its expression in many ways, but it's at root, me first, me most, me of all. And that's my problem, and that's your problem too. And when we realize that's the problem that is getting in the way of what Christ wants to do in our lives, or more accurately and theologically, what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Then we have a problem, and we have to address it. We have to acknowledge it. We don't have to weep. We don't have to go into a guilt trip. We don't have to get caught in shame. That's why Jesus gave his life for us. That's why he was risen rose from the dead, that we might know this new life. And so we, we can express that through spiritual breathing. But ultimately, it's just saying, you take control of my life. You acknowledge you don't have to be weighed down by the things you just did or said or the attitude you just had. If you can give yourself to the Lord then you can welcome the work of the Spirit and you can have a changed attitude and he will work in your life and do great things, new things. So that helped me a great deal and I began to practice what that little book encouraged me to do and I I do that to this day. I don't have to go through all the wording. I just know that I need to turn my life over to the power and the gracious control of the Lord, his spirit, and begin to expect him to give me the power I need to do and say the right things that I need to do and say. But it was only, if I go back to that moment when I read that pamphlet and started practicing that, It was later that I began to comprehend that Jesus' resurrection was the cataclysmic rupture of the line of Adam, the first Adam. And I began to personalize, I don't have a better word for this, realize would be a worthy word too, but to more or less comprehend and fathom the new creation that is what is talked about in the New Testament, the new creation that is offered in the good news of the gospel, what we talk about when we think of the vitality or sing about when we talk about the Holy Spirit, or even the new life in the resurrection All of that, that is the new creation, the new birth, the new life that Paul described. And he describes it in bits, sometimes big bits, 
in his letters, we saw a very important piece last week when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58, but specifically, and the heart of it is verses 42 through 49, which we read, and it begins with a comparison in verse 42, 3, and 4, and it says, the body is sown, the body is raised, and it's a contrast between two kinds of vitality, um, animation, power, and in verse 44, it talks about, in our translations say a natural, some even say physical, it's shown a natural or physical body and it's raised a spiritual body. And that word that's translated natural or physical is the word, we don't really have an equivalent, it's, it's psychikos. It means of the soul. Now, what's important is that's a clear reference to Genesis 2-7. When God breathed into the man made of dust and he became a living being, a living psyche, soul. And that is what's being contrasted. Our life is being characterized in all of its weakness even at its best, in the way it's sown. And then contrasted with the spirit of God that is going to animate the new life that is ours in the resurrection. And then we see that clearly spelled out in verse 45 when he actually says the first man, Adam, was a living being. So that's Genesis 2-7 right there. And then it's contrasted with the last or final man, Adam, is life-giving spirit referring to the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, but the spiritual talks about our spiritual identity as being our ultimate identity, and that is our, he says, image in the man of heaven, verse 49. So that's what we're meant for. C.S. Lewis would sometimes say, we just have this, this innate desire for something more. That's my own wording, but it was his idea for something more because we're meant for more. We're meant for heaven. And we have no idea how grand and wonderful, how fulfilling and complete life will be in the resurrection. So, that's what I mean about personalizing it. When we sing, you're all I want, we're talking about the Spirit. That's kind of what I want us to understand this morning and uh, understand it more clearly. Because when Christ was raised from the dead which we celebrated a week ago, Christ was exalted to the right hand of the Father. I'm quoting Acts chapter 2, verse 33. He was exalted to the right hand of, the, of God, and it is there that he pours out the spirit of promise, which from the end of Luke chapter 24 into Acts chapter 1, again and again you hear this echoed, wait for the promised spirit. 
Don't try to do it, in other words. Don't get ahead of yourselves. I know you think you've got all that is needed to make this happen, but you need to wait for the Spirit. And you know, that's a good reminder to us all. If we'd waited for the Spirit, maybe I wouldn't have gotten angry. Maybe I wouldn't have been so preoccupied with my own interests and needs and then gotten angry that they weren't satisfied or things like that. I know that you maybe can't relate to this, but I struggle with these things each and every day. Selfishness. I catch myself. It's not like I'm going to be selfish now. No, but I detect it. And that's when I turn to the Lord. I want you to be the power of my life. And that's the work of the Spirit. And that happened on the basis of the resurrection. And the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. That was the creation of the church. In other words, unless the Spirit was poured out, there is no church. In fact, it is the Spirit that makes us one. We have a oneness, and that's the basis for the word of gathering or congregating or assembling, which is what the word church means, assembly. But it's not just an assembly of city council members. It's an assembly of those who are anointed and gifted with the Holy Spirit. And we have this identity. You can't see it in our faces. We look so different. Our hair color is different. We have different human genetic makeup. But we have this divine oneness. And that's the basis of the church. And you can see why when I started to personalize and comprehend this, I mean, it's not that you haven't heard this. But when it gets into your soul and you start to realize the depth of what is being said here, there would be no church if the Spirit wasn't poured out. There would be no outpouring of the Holy Spirit on his people to create the church if Jesus had not risen from the dead. And the power of his resurrection is the Spirit. And now that Spirit of life, life life-giving Spirit, belongs to us. And I fear sometimes that we live just in our own strength, our first Adam abilities, if you will. So the Spirit was poured out and we were created as a church because of our oneness. The Spirit unifies us. What is it that divides us? If you've ever been in a church where there's schism, division, it's selfishness. But when the Spirit really is the Lord, Paul twice says, let the Spirit lead you. We're told to walk after the Spirit. When the Spirit truly is leading us, There's healing, there's oneness, there's unifying taking place, and there's empowering. And the Spirit fills his church when we are filled with the Spirit. 
This same spirit whose power raised Jesus is given to us as a seal and a pledge of our redemption and resurrection. And you can read about that in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22, chapter 5, verse 5, refers to the sealing, the pledge that the Spirit is to us, that we belong to him. In Romans 8, we're told that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit, that we are the children of God. Well, that's because of that pledge. That pledge assures us, encourages, reminds us, anchors us in the Lord, calls us back to the Lord. In all that and more is in the New Testament. I read so much uh, this week I didn't think I could even put this together. There's so much to say about the Spirit. But it's all right there in the New Testament. And I think if you were to, in your devotionals, just kind of turn up the, the awareness and, and note when you see the word Spirit and what's being told to you about the Spirit, the Spirit's activity, the Spirit's character, the Spirit's power, what the Spirit's all about you'll start to see all these things that I'm trying to tie together for you this morning. But what I want to begin with, in a sense, is, is with Jesus' words to his disciples. He has some instruction for his disciples. And in the Gospel of John, and you could read chapters 14, 15, and 16, and you'll read a lot about the Holy Spirit. You could read Romans 8, and you'll read a lot about the Holy Spirit. You could read Galatians 5, and you'll read a lot about the Holy Spirit. But I want us to begin with John uh, chapter, four, uh, chapter 14, verse 16. Jesus tells his disciples, I will ask, this is before he's gone to the cross, before he's risen from the dead. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete to be with you forever. Now, the word paraclete is not going to occur in your translations. The word that you'll find in your translation is probably helper, counselor, advocate, comforter. It's also used of an intercessor. But if you think of yourself as in a situation where you need help, you need counsel, you need guidance, you need someone to stand up for you, you need someone to represent you, then you're talking about a paraclete. And that's the word here. In fact, it's used of Jesus in 1 John 2, chapter 2, verse 1. It occurs about four or five times in chapters 14 through 16 in the Gospel of John. But what I want you to now see, he says, I'm going to, the Father will give you another paraclete. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is a role that I have fulfilled as your Lord and Master, two terms that he used to describe himself with his disciples. They haven't even fathomed who all Jesus is yet until after his death and resurrection. But he says, I'm going to send another paraclete. 
And it, well, we're, we're happy with you, Jesus. You know, we can see you. When you move, we can follow you because we know where you're going. And when we talk to you, you talk back to us. And when we touch you, we feel you. And when you talk to us, we kind of perk up and we respond. And all of the stuff that has to being in your presence and being your disciples, those who follow you around and mimic what you do. But Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete. And notice it says, he will come to you, and if I, excuse me, he will come to you, and he will be with you forever. Don't miss that. That should be underlined. You see, I can't always be around you. In fact, sometimes in the past when I've gone off and prayed, you've wondered where I was, and you were looking all over for me. But this paraclete, another paraclete just like me, <laughs> will be with you forever. And then in chapter 16, turn over in your Bibles a page or two, chapter 16, verse 7, he tells his disciples, it is for your benefit, or some translations would say to your advantage, so what's better for me? Now, I, over the years, have, have many times thought, oh, if I could have only walked with Jesus, actually heard his voice, been a part, you know, of those who witnessed and were around him. But this is better, Jesus says. This is to your advantage if I go. I will send him to you. So, you get a picture here that the paraclete, that is the Holy Spirit, described as someone who's going to fulfill the very role, another paraclete, the fulfill the role of Jesus in our lives. Does that make sense? Is that clear? And he's going to be with us forever, always accessible, always with us, and notice forever. Not, that's not just to death, because it is that spirit that is going to become complete, so to speak, in our lives when we're resurrected, because we're going to become spiritual people, not psychical, Adam one type people. We're going to be version final. In his book, Jesus Continued, notice the title of that work. In his book, Jesus Continued, J.D. Greer put it this way, and I'm quoting him. Jesus claimed that having the Holy Spirit in them would be better than having him beside them. So the Holy Spirit, you see, continues the ministry of Jesus Christ that he promised to his first disciples who were comparing what it was like to be with him and have him at their side. And Jesus said, it's to your advantage. He'll be with you forever. And that advantage is the same advantage that you and I have. We are in no way removed or second class to the very first disciples if you read the book of Acts, count the number of times you encounter the Spirit. It will, it will amaze you. 
The Spirit is every. Somebody said once, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be called the acts of the apostles. It should be the acts of the Holy Spirit. But how do we see, know, and follow the Spirit of God? <clears throat> if you read in the Gospel of John and across the New Testament, you will learn quickly that the Holy Spirit You just don't see him, hear him. Everything is about Jesus Christ. And that really makes sense because the Spirit wouldn't be poured out without Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished. But in a, in a word, the, the Holy Spirit exalts Jesus Christ in our lives. And everything that he does, for example, the fruit of the Spirit is the, is the prophet. It's the, it's the outcome of what the Spirit is doing in our lives. And when you look at that fruit as it's enumerated in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, and that's what we'll be looking at later in this series, one by one by one by one, we'll be talking about the fruit of the Spirit. But that's, look what I did, Mom, look what I did, Dad, and our child runs up and shows us something that they created that they produced. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is what the Spirit works in our life. When you look at that fruit, that's, that's the character of Jesus Christ. That's Christ's likeness in the most human version possible. If we look like that, really, we should all want to be a person that looks like that, you know? The Spirit will prompt us to elevate Christ, to put Christ first, to make him Lord. And so, in a sense, my main point is we invite the Spirit to lead us when we exalt Jesus as Lord. In other words, we'll think about Jesus. Even earlier I talked about, you know, I was talking to the Lord. When I talk to the Lord, I see Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God. No one has ever seen God. It's said repeatedly in the Gospel of John. But Jesus has revealed him, has made him known. So if you really want to know God, know Jesus. If you want to thrive in your relationship with Jesus, if you really want to make him Lord, or if you do in your own strength seek to make him Lord, you'll find the Spirit in more at work in your life because you're freeing the Spirit to do what he's there to do, and that is to create the likeness of Christ in us, to elevate the Lordship of Christ in our life, to cause us to realize Jesus is everything. When I received Jesus Christ, you know, I, language is different. I think I said earlier, I, I just had had it with myself. I didn't know where to turn. I was lost. Uh, I'd failed. That's how I felt. I was way down. And it was there that I begrudgingly kind of turned to the Lord. And I said, I give up. You win. I'm going to make you the Lord of my life. I knew that when I got up off the grass where I was sitting beside a canal in the dark by myself, I knew that when I got up and started walking, I was going to walk with the Lord. 
And that was going to bring all kinds of crazy stuff for me, you know? And I said, how do I do this? And the answer, I'm not saying I had a direct line with the Lord or something, but I just heard, I just thought, walk with me, as though Jesus said that to me. Walk with me. Walk with me. Do it my way, in other words. And when you find it hard to do it my way, then ask me how to do it my way. And when I would ask him how to do it my way, his way, I would trust him. And I would take an approach that I knew wasn't my way, but was more a Christ-like way. Now, I, I really believe the word is a tremendous gift to us to have Bibles. The first church didn't even have Bibles. We got pocket testaments. We got them on our devices. But we should not forget that Christ can flourish in a life without Bibles. If a person seeks the Lord and follows him, the Lord will lead and the Spirit's work will begin in that person's life. I don't think that should be a substitute for the better knowledge that we have from the Word. But I'm just trying to say, we really, that's, that's expecting great things from God and from His Word. That's how I began. And when we follow Jesus, the Spirit empowers us. When we turn to Jesus, the Spirit meets us. When we rely on Jesus, the Spirit supports us. When we listen to Jesus, the Spirit speaks to us. When we wait on Jesus, the Spirit encourages us. Conversely, when we resist Jesus, and we don't think we're resisting Jesus, but what we're really doing is promoting ourselves, which is resisting Jesus. And that's a natural thing for us. So don't be discouraged when you catch yourself doing it. It's our native way of living. Me first. And our society totally promotes it. So don't beat yourself up. Don't take yourself out of the game. Just say, oops. And appropriate, claim the right relationship that you have through Jesus Christ with the Lord and go forward in the power of the Spirit. Or do like I said. How do I do this? By trusting in you. How do I trust you in, in this situation? How do I do this your way and not my way? And then you'll grow and you'll gain wisdom. And the Spirit is described as the Spirit of wisdom as well in the New Testament. But when we resist and oppose Jesus, we oppose the Spirit, we grieve the Spirit, we quench the Spirit. Those are all expressions that are used in Paul's writings and in the New Testament. In fact, the word quench, that sounds like, ah, you know, go, 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 that's ah, just great, I'm quenched. But what this is about is it's really just extinguishing the role of the Spirit in our life. It's like we're saying, I'm not talking to you at all. I'm not listening to you. 
What's interesting, in 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, Paul told Timothy to fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. Fan it into flame. Make it a roaring fire. We sang a song in which the Spirit is likened to fire. When the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, they saw the image of fire on each of their heads. Fan into flame the gift of God that is in you, for the Spirit that God has given us does not make us fearful, but gives us power, love, and sound judgment. Well, I didn't get finished, but I think I'm going to stop right there. And I do want to encourage us, even as we are here, just right where we sit, to relinquish, relinquish the control of our lives to a much more benevolent, wise, and good Lord. And then as you do this, as you walk in the Spirit, whether you call it spiritual breathing or not, you'll grow in your expectation because when you believe that you are filled with the Spirit, your ears are open. Your eyes are open. You're aware of what God's doing in your life. And those accidents and coincidences, hmm, we see the Lord at work. May God bless you.